James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. And I promise this week we will finish, James. There were some things that we did not finish last Sunday. Time ran out from me. Uh, I was not, uh, I did not make good use of my, or I did not, uh, I was not a wise tactician as it relates to time. Uh, So my intention is to finish this section this morning with a higher concentration uh, upon verses 16 through 20. But I'll read verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering, then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful, he is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick, then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, And pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the reading and preaching of your word. We thank you, Lord, for your word, the ministry of the Holy Spirit who grants us understanding, who reminds us of the words of Christ. We pray that you would thus hear Help us that we might hear him speak, Jesus, Christ our Savior. Speak through your word this morning in our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, James has been speaking about prayer, and he's been speaking about the Christian life, and he's writing to, as he identifies in chapter 1, strangers and aliens, uh, people who are elect exiles, as it were. Strangers and aliens are, are more Peter's way of thinking, but but, but, but James identifies them as aliens in the world uh, and uh, those who are scattered about um, uh, throughout the world itself. He's writing to Christian people who are believers, people who are struggling with various sins, uh, people who frankly think that uh, perhaps or at least are being told that uh, all they need to do is believe certain core tenets of the faith And then they can live as they please. But James is concerned as a pastor that they understand that they must live in a certain way. In other words, that they must live Christianly. If they are to believe the Christian gospel, that Christian gospel will bear fruit in their lives. That their fruit, their justifying faith, will be accompanied by works that justify the faith as real and true. In other words, works in a life of obedience, principled obedience to God, that displays that save that saving faith is genuinely present. So James intends to write to them about how they are to behave in the world and in the church, and that they are to wait. They are to await the coming of the Lord. That they are to to be patient and to uh, suffer patiently, and and that God will address their needs, and and that they are not to swear by heaven or or. or by earth as an oath, and they are to, uh, if they are suffering, they are to reach out to the elders and ask for them to come and pray and be anointed. Well, he finishes this chapter this morning in verses 16 through 20 with some very short, brief statements. And I, I confess that I think James chapter 5, verses 13 and following are significantly, seriously misunderstood oftentimes, misinterpreted, and that there are various doctrines that are created based upon uh, this very passage this morning, all intended to obscure and obfuscate, I think. Um, And we need to take the word at face value and understand the word in light of the larger context of Scripture. One thing, if we can take a meta view, it's to step back and say, Certainly, James has an intention in this passage to emphasize the importance of prayer. If there's one thing that we get out of this passage, we need to get this one thing, that prayer is of tantamount importance in the life of Christians. That there's no such thing, as I said last week, 
as a Christian who is holding genuine faith and who never prays. You show me a person who never prays, who doesn't believe that they should ever pray at all, whether that's in praise, adoration, thanksgiving, or supplication, and I'll show you someone who really isn't a believer. Prayer is the lifeblood of a believer. How can we be drawn in saving communion to God through the reconciliation of the Lord Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts, prompting us to live in a godly Christian way and and to walk in the newness of life in which we have been born again into by grace through faith and not pray ever? It's not possible. We are drawn into communion. It is inevitable that we are drawn into communion with God through the inner presence of the Holy Spirit and by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ and by virtue of the love of God the Father that has been shed abroad in our hearts. So prayer, prayer is of great importance. He makes some observations about prayer. Very careful, useful observations concerning prayer. The first of which is that it aids us in the forgiving of one another's sin and in our reconciliation one to another. Now, I know none of of us here this morning have ever been offended by another Christian. And I know, conversely, none of us have ever offended any other Christian ourselves. Well, the truth of the matter is that within the Christian church, yes, we do uh, offend one another, and we do because we are sinners We actually sin. And so in our life in the community, we might say something out of turn or might say something harmful or simply emotionally, we might quickly respond in a certain way and be guilty of impatience or unkindness or insensitivity. We all sin against one another. We all do. We all do. And we don't just do it once a month. We do it frequently. The way that we ignore one another's needs, the way that we simply don't take an interest in each other as we ought to, the way that we don't show Christian affection to one another as we should, the way that we don't call one another on the phone and say, I'm I'm praying for you, how can I be praying for you this week? The way in which we speak a word to one another and we do it callously without thinking about the needs of that other person. We walk away. We go to our homes, we eat lunch, and we really don't think about how so-and-so was deeply suffering or this person looks so very saddened. Meanwhile, we simply say things to each other that are hurtful, don't we? And maybe we're guilty of gossip or of bitterness against one another. There are countless ways in which we can lie, pardon me, in which we can sin, including lying, yes? We sin and we sin against one another. And James is aware of that fact. And he doesn't say, now don't any of you sin against one another. That's good pastoral counsel. But but it may not be realistic in this world because we will. And so what he says, and we are told in other places, not to sin in specific ways. but, But he does say in verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins. To one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, he's just gotten done saying uh, we are to call when we are gravely ill we are to, or, or significantly ill. We are in need of prayer and, <clears throat> and we call for the elders and they come and they anoint us. In other words, applying medication of some kind or, or making sure that, sure that medical care is applied in some way, but also that they pray for you. And as they pray, that there's the possibility that their, 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 their sickness is due to sin. Not all sickness is due to sin. Certainly, the scriptures teach the opposite. Jesus was with his disciples, and there was a man who was blind, and, and, and he was healed. And the disciples asked him afterwards, who sinned, his parents or this man? In other words, they had made an assumption. If this man is, in need, is blind from birth, surely he or his parents sinned. And Jesus says, no, neither. It was that the Son of God might be glorified. So that man was blind from birth so that one day he would meet Jesus. Jesus would place his hands upon this man, heal his eyes, and he would open his eyes, and the first thing he would see is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
extraordinary the way that God thinks and the way that God provides. And frankly, I'll bet you that man will tell you in eternity he would have it no other way. Well, sometimes there are sicknesses that are a result of sin. There are. We can think of various ways in which sexual infidelity bears fruit in the person's body or in one's life. And the repercussions and the many ripples that develop in one's life because of that break the bonds of covenant fellowship and marriage and watch what happens. There, there are many other ways in which we might see the results of sin. But, but James has in view just the possibility, at least, not the certainty that every single sickness is the result of sin. I had a cold last week. Did I sin and God sent a cold as just punishment? No, my sin deserves much more. I simply was ill because there's the presence of viruses and bacteria in our world because Adam sinned. So in essence, yes, in a meta sense, sin has entered into the world and therefore everything that we suffer in our bodies is a result of the sin which Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. But in the day-to-day of my endurance of sickness, not every sickness is a result of sin. Very few are, but some are. James wants us to know that. And he makes clear in verse 13, 14, and 15 that the prayers offered for him, that person, that if there is sin, their sin will be forgiven them according to God's grace and his willingness to forgive sin. But then in verse 16, we are told that we are to confess our sin to one another and and pray for one another that we may be healed. So there's this expansion of this necessity of prayer that and of praying for healing. If as we've been told already by James, sickness and suffering and cheerfulness and sinfulness are all occasions for prayer, and surely we have to begin to realize that prayer applies to every situation in life. And verses 14 and 15, the matter there for prayer was simply a physical illness. But here in verse 16, it's sin. Sometimes, We sin against one another. And when we sin against one another, there's a sickness in our soul that needs healing. And the way to be healed is to cry out to God for forgiveness and to pray, to pray for one another, for our own souls as well, but also to confess our sin to each other. Now, James does not have in view, he's not speaking about this sort of confession here of Roman Catholic tendency to uh, or practice of that there are certain individuals in the church can, that can hear prayer having been commissioned by God and they can ab- absolve you of your sins by a simple waving of the hand and applying what Christ has done. No, that's not this is not a passage that has grounds for establishing the doctrine of confession or the practice of confession. Frankly, James is using the language of brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, you and me, that we are to go to one another, that we are to confess our sin to each other when we sin against one another. I'll, I'll tell you, there's not a week that goes by without my need of going to my wife in some way and saying, I've sinned against you, would you please forgive me? And less frequently, but on occasion, my wife has to do the same. But we live in a relationship with each other, and sometimes we sin against one another. And so the way that we deal with that is we go to God and we ask for forgiveness, but we also go to one another because we have offended and hurt each other. Well, he's speaking to the brethren, and he's telling them, you, the brethren, you, the congregation, you, when you offend one another, go and confess your sins to each other. He's not saying, establish a priestly class in the church, and when you sin, whether in thought, word, or deed, go to that individual in a booth somewhere at the back of the church at specific hours of the week, confess your sins, and then he will forgive you through his own power. That's not what James is saying here. Not at all. Brethren, the believing community of God's people, In the same way that you need healing and you're to pray for one another, you're also to pray for one another when you sin against each other. And when you sin against each other, you're to go to each each person that you've offended uh, in the course of time, asking for forgiveness 
and joining together in common prayer. He's not saying that we ought to go and confess necessarily our private sins, sins which are between us and God, our thought life, the privacy of our own thought life. But when we have committed sin against each other, we are to go to one another and to confess that sin. I've been apologized to. I've, I've had people come to me and ask for forgiveness. And sometimes they'll come and they'll say, yeah, I wanted to ask for forgiveness. I, you know, I misspoke there. But you know, what I was really doing was I was trying to explain, and, and then there, there, there's a 10-minute explanation of why they sinned. I've received apologies that weren't really apologies. I, I'm very sorry for what I said and that you were offended. That's not really a repentance. That's not really asking for forgiveness. I've also received, and I've, I've had to offer too, repentance for having wronged someone. And usually that goes in this way. So-and-so, I said or I did this, and you're aware of it, and I need to ask your forgiveness because I sinned against you. Will you please forgive me? Asking for forgiveness is not just simply saying, I'm sorry. What does that mean? Except, I'm, I'm really sorry that this happened. I'm really sorry for how I feel. I'm really sorry that this happened and that I have to come to you. What does that mean? I'm sorry. Certainly say, I'm sorry, but mean it. And follow up with what, what, what is biblical, and that is, would you please forgive me? I've sinned against you. I'm not just sorry, but I'm repentant. I'm struck in my heart as to the wickedness of my sin. I'm grieved. I'm humbled. And I want to be reconciled to you. And that's what James has in view here. He tells us to confess one to another, and there's a mutual confession of sin here. It's not always a one-sided thing. Perhaps someone needs to say, well, I sinned against you in response, and, and it's my behavior that made you react the way that it, you did to me, and uh, will you please forgive me as well, because I've sinned against you. The church is to be a seedbed where there is a, a continuing exercise of repentance over sin. Because there is a reality that we are going to sin against one another. You remember, you chuckled a few moments ago when I said, we never sin against one another. You know this to be true, that we do in fact sin against each other. And so when we sin, the Bible's view, Jesus' view is, God's requirement is that we confess our sins to one another and ask for forgiveness. We are to do that when the other person is abrasive. We are to do that when the other person really has done worse than we ourselves did and have done more things to offend us than we have actually done to offend them. There's no weighing in the scales except that if we have sinned against God, if we have sinned against our brother or sister in the Lord, we are to go to them and ask for forgiveness, period. We are not to wait for someone else to come to us. I'll, I'll repent and apologize when they come to me. No, he says, James does. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The fact is that some of us may in fact be reaping in our body the results of our sinful behaviors towards one another. James opens up at least the possibility to that question. Perhaps God is withholding healing from us in some way because we have sinned against someone else and we have held it in our heart and we are unwilling to go to them and repent. Basic understanding here is that when we've committed a sin, we must go to the offended party and humbly ask for forgiveness simply for the sake of our own spiritual health and well-being, for our own reconciliation to God, for, for our own spiritual devotion and, and for our hearing. It doesn't, doesn't Paul say to believing husbands and wives, husbands, don't treat your wives un, in an ungodly way, but be gentle with them because the truth of the matter is your prayers may not be well, maybe stopped at the very door of heaven itself. God may not be granting you request because you've not confessed your sin of dealing unjustly and harshly with your wife. 
So James opens up the possibility to us that possibly at times we may be suffering in our body the results of our public sins. And the church is to be a place where there is forgiveness and and there is a willing humility and an approach to one another when we know that when the Holy Spirit leads us to an understanding, I'm as sinful in my attitudes towards Pat this morning. I need to go to her and be reconciled and let her know that I know that I was not kind. I, I, I need to go to Lena today and tell her that when I spoke to her on the phone last week, I was impatient and I got off the phone as quickly as I could, but I sensed that she needed a little more time and, and I just was unwilling to give it to her and I need to repent of that. Or I need to go to Stephen at the end of the week because I realized that I was impatient. And he was talking to me earlier in the week and I, I need to ask his forgiveness. And so to go to Stephen and say, I was impatient with you. Would you please forgive me? The truth is that None of us repent as often as we ought to. And very few of us confess our sins to one another as we should and as James commands. But James is not just giving us his opinion. James is recounting the very word of God. This is the word of God. Confess your sins to one another. If we, have conf- if we have committed a sin against one another, we are to confess our sins to each other. And so James shows a, a deep concern for fellowship throughout this epistle. And, and, and he has, in a foreboding manner, told us that a, a breach of fellowship is as grievous as war or murder even. And so it's suitable when God's people, as he points out, we are to repair this breach and to dependence upon the Holy Spirit and to heal our relationships. He does assume a number of things about repentance and forgiveness. He assumes that we will be genuinely penitent and not just flippant. That we will actually honestly be truly penitent, however difficult it is to humble ourselves, or how costly it may be because we have to swallow our pride. And we can't go when we are confessing our sins with a complaint about the behaviors of the other person. We have to go with only a recognition of the fact that we ourselves have sinned against this person and I, I need to repent of that, that, that sin and I need to ask for their forgiveness. We, are, we don't go and say, all right, now that I've confessed my sin, I want to invite you to repent to me over the things that you've done. Well, that's false repentance. I think you're more offended than you are penitent. Think about this. If someone has offended you, has hurt you, don't you, doesn't it help when they come and apologize? When someone has used language that has been hurtful or they've treated you in a way that was brusque and impatient, isn't it helpful when they come and they say, would you please forgive me? I was sinful in my attitude. How do you feel when that happens? As infrequent as it may happen, I don't know about you, but I I feel humbled. I feel in my own heart a desire to repent of my own sins. I I feel that God is at work in my relationship. I feel closer to that individual now in that moment. I feel a genuine, heartfelt love and loving pity for them and with them, not not in a a worldly way, but a loving pity that draws my my heart out to to them. And when I have to repent of my sin, it humbles me and it gets rid of all the dross that leads to the way in which I treat people and it draws me near to them and makes me willing to submit in Christian discipline and kindness. And you know, it reaffirms in my heart that I'm a child of God because only a Christian can and will repent truly of our sins to the Lord and be drawn to do so toward one another. No one finds it easy to say, I'm, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Let alone to say it to someone who's offended us at some point and hasn't apologized yet. But how much it hurts us isn't really the issue, but merely 
the importance is placed upon the fact that we need to ask for forgiveness when we sin. We need to ask the Lord to forgive us, and we need to ask one another to forgive when we have offended each other. The truth is that we need to have a greater zeal, not only upon our trampled rights and our hurt feelings, but a greater a greater intensity over the concern, the soul's concerned that I have sinned and I need to go to this person and repent. But we are often more indignant over our rights that have been trampled and the way that we have been treated. Clearly, James is showing us we need to be far, far, far more concerned that we have offended and hurt our brother or sister in Christ. That we ourselves have sinned. It's a biblical command that we have to go about doing the repair of the breach and in our fellowship with our brothers and sisters with whom we have opened a breach by our unfaithful and sinful conduct. Now, James assumes that we're going to be eager to reconcile with each other. Then we, we have to be prompt and ready to forgive. Now, let's say someone comes to you and they've, they've offended you greatly. In the American church, what do you do when someone offends you and sins against you? Well, you leave. Right? You simply leave. But that's not the way of it. It's not the way that the Lord has called us to be. I I was recently sitting in with a a couple, and they were describing how they had run into difficulties in their church. And at one point, the pastor had screamed in a room privately with the wife, screamed at her face to face, yelling loudly at her, telling her that she was supposed to do this, that, or the other thing. I forget exactly what, but I can't imagine... (laughs) ever doing that to any one of you or of any one of you forgiving me of such a, a sin like that. Now, I have not done that, but can you imagine being on the receiving end of it? Well, that woman for, simply forgave her pastor. I think that's extraordinary. I think she should have forgiven, but I think she should have gone to him and told him how she was offended. So there are a lot of different things that we have to involve here. Not just in a blanket way forgive sinful behaviors without the expectation that in some way this individual is made aware of the sin that they've committed. We should go to that person. Doesn't Jesus tell us when we are offended, what are we to do? To go to the other person and tell them. We are to go to them and say, look, your conduct, you're screaming at me in the other room, in that, the other Sunday in that room, was offensive to me and it was improper. Invite them. Give them an opportunity in love, with grace, to ask for your forgiveness, to be convicted over their sins. And then you, your role, my role, is to be ready and willing and eager to forgive their sins. Not just, you know, standing back waiting in a self-righteous sort of uh, posture but eagerly waiting, eagerly ready, always willing to forgive sin. Even if someone calls you a hateful name, to be willing to say, I forgive you. Not just say it, but to believe in our heart and and to rebuke our heart that's offended and to say, I love this person. They've confessed their sin. And in the same way that Jesus Christ has forgiven me of my many offenses against his grace, I must forgive my brother and sister in the Lord and thus demonstrate that I am truly a Christian. How much it hurts when we are offended is not the issue. We must ask forgiveness when we have offended and sinned and we also must be ready and willing to forgive. And further, James has something else here. They are to pray for one another, he says. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed, so that your relationship may be healed, so that you may be healed spiritually. So if we offend one another and, 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 and if we come to one another and confess our sin and we reconcile one to another, then the truth is that we are to then pray for one another. So when someone comes to you and says, would you please forgive me for my sinful attitude? Say yes. I love you. Let's come aside in the room over here and let's pray together. And prayer seals the deal, doesn't it? Prayer encourages forgiveness. 
Lord Jesus Christ, as this person has just asked for, for my forgiveness, Lord, I forgive them because you've forgiven me of my grave sins. Would you encourage my brother or sister who has just repented to me and show them that you, O oh God, have forgiven them in Christ Jesus? Would you rebuild them? Would you encourage them? Would you restore our fellowship together? You see, this is what James has in view here. When we offend one another, to come away and pray together after we confess our sins to each other. Yes, it's really hard to do this. Our pride fights against common confession of our sins to another person. It fights just as hard when we're called to forgive each other. I don't want to forgive this person. I don't feel like forgiving this person. But if forgiveness is asked for, and you've experienced the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus, what does withholding forgiveness demonstrate but perhaps that you have never experienced the forgiveness of God in Christ, or at least, at the very least, in that moment, you have forgotten. May God remind us, may God make us well aware of the sins which we have committed. It's extraordinary when we confess our sins to one another. We deepen fellowship. We encourage one another. We promote love and understanding between each other. We deepen our friendship. We display an example to the rest of the church as to how to do this and, and before the world of what godly behavior in the church looks like. We reconcile ourselves to one another, but we also enable and help one another to be reconciled to God. And we encourage repentance in our own heart and in each other's hearts. Forgiveness, dear friend, helps. It greatly helps. It helps to restore. It helps to promote love and understanding as I've just encountered. Being angry with one another and withholding forgiveness accomplishes nothing. Do we realize that? Simply continuing to be angry with and hateful towards one another and holding a grudge against one another, it, it doesn't do anything. It encourages sin. It encourages the other party to think more sinfully about you. And it deepens the bitterness and the hardness of your own heart. Therefore, forgive one another and pray for one another. More often, though, there is more to be forgiven than just one person. Normally, the blame can be shared. And we find that when someone comes and repents to us, we need to respond and say, well, I sinned in this way. I know you offended me, and I've been thinking horrible thoughts. I've been very unkind in my thinking. Please forgive me as well. I didn't handle it the way that I should. I didn't come to you and repent. I didn't come to you and challenge you about your conduct towards me. I didn't come and tell you I was offended. <laughs> Nor is prayer so healing as when one... When offenses are brought before God, not just our own, but others as well. And so James is saying, pray for one another. Lord, forgive her. Lord, forgive him. I've forgiven them. Would you forgive them too? So we pray without much thought about it, that God would forgive us in the same manner as we forgive those who need our forgiveness. Isn't that what Jesus taught us? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Are we drawing a correlation there? Inasmuch as I have experienced the forgiveness of God, and inasmuch as I forgive my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, forgive me. That's what, that's what we're saying when we pray there. In the same way in which I forgive others when they offend me, Lord, will you forgive me? And my offense is against you. Thank God that his mercy extends beyond our loosely spoken words because... If God forgave us in the manner in which we all forgive others, we would surely be bound for hell, unforgiven for a million reasons and minor issues with all manner of grudges held against us without the true possibility of genuine pardon and forgiveness. But James tells us to pray, to pray for one another when we offend one another. For where we may have been bruised by one another, God is ready to heal and to restore. And that is what we should seek. And some of us this morning need a reminder that we, we sin continually with our mouth, with our lips, with the way in which we offend one another. 
and we should be about the business of going to that person to whom we have, uh, of whom we have offended and being willing to repent and ask for forgiveness. There was an event that happened in the back of the church, I'd say about three years ago, there was a, a, a loosely spoken word, a loosely spoken statement in front of another believer that someone shared, and the other person heard it, didn't say a thing. But I did hear about it, and I went to this individual who had said that, and I said, look, what you just said was offensive and hurtful, and you need to go and ask this person for forgiveness. That person went instantly, and that person was humbled and asked for forgiveness in the right way, and that brother was restored to that one, and there was forgiveness and repentance, and afterwards that individual went in the back room and prayed for this person as well. That's what should be happening in our church, a readiness to forgive and a willingness to go and to confess our sins when we offend one another. Well, you may think, well, right now, with prayer, prayer is such a difficult thing, and prayer is so very hard for a believer. And I find prayer and approaching another Christian for forgiveness so very difficult. Well, the Apostle, well, James tells us, the Apostle James tells us there's an answer to that. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for there three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Why does he tell us about Elijah? Because you and I are often inclined to think that if I'm not like Elijah, and if I don't pray like Elijah, then my prayers will not be heard. I really can't approach God for forgiveness in that way because I'm just an ordinary human being and I'm so filled with sin. Or like the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, that that he was the chief of sinners, a wretched man. And maybe we think, and we are right, and we know that we are filled with wretched sins. And we may look through the Bible and we see that prayer is something that Joshua did. He prayed and the sun stood still and Elijah prayed and the widow's son came to life. And Elisha prayed and the Shunammite son was restored to life. Hezekiah prayed and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers died like that. And we might think, well, those people were much more holy than me. I can't accomplish anything through prayer like that. And that's why James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed. And it didn't rain for three years. And then he prayed again and it did rain. Have you ever ever read Elijah's prayers in the book of the Kings? Have you ever read them? They're very simple. Oh Lord God. I ask that you would show and display your power to this unbelieving horde of people that they may see you as the true God of Israel. Remember when he prayed something similar, I'm paraphrasing, uh, there before the the disciples of Baal who had prayed before their their sacrifice offered over, over an altar on which there was no water. And they were told the the true God is the one before whom fire falls out of heaven. And all day long they cut themselves and cried out and danced and sang and cried and and pled with this God Baal. And nothing happened. And then Elijah simply went up and he said, pour water, pour water, pour water, pour water, pour water, pour water. It's soaked. There's no way it can burn. And he simply prays and says, Lord God, Jehovah, you are the one, you are the one true God. Now show, show all Israel that you are true and Baal is not. That sacrifice was burned up. Very shortly thereafter, as he prayed that rain would be restored, rain came. And James wants us to know that Elijah was a man like you and me. Elijah was a person like you and me. Now, Elijah and and Hezekiah and Joshua were all encouraged, and Elisha were encouraged to pray for these specific things, and that God would grant them to them if they prayed for them. You and I can't necessarily pray for the death of 185,000 enemies of God today. We haven't been specifically called to do that. But we are called to bring everything to God in prayer. 
with an expectation that God will hear us. In short, they're people just like us. It doesn't mean that we should ask for the sun to stand still, but we can, apply, we, can, we can expect that when we pray, the same power is going to be applied as the power that was applied to answer the requests of Elijah and Elisha and Joshua and Hezekiah. It's very important for James, for us, to James, for us to recognize that there is an incredible power, an unlimited, limitless power, the power of God, Jehovah God, that he himself hears our prayers and grants us all things in accord with his will if we ask in Christ. I hear a lot about the power of prayer and people see an answer to prayer and they say, well, it's the power of prayer. No, it's the power of God. It's the power of God. It's not because you fell to your knees and asked God for something that he gave you something. You fell to your knees because the Spirit of God prompted you to fall to your knees. You were moved to prayer in the first place by the power of God. He set you on your knees and he encouraged you to ask for what you asked for because he was willing and he was eager to give it to you. God is not under any compulsion simply because you asked for it. We live in a day and age in the church that says that God, the almighty, sovereign, free, immutable God, is is obliged to grant you whatever you ask for simply because prayer is powerful and you have been granted the ability to demand of God whatever you wish. No, that is anti-biblical. That is anti-Christian. James is telling us that God, it is the delight of his heart to answer prayer. And the almighty power of God is behind answered prayer. There is an incredible accomplishing power that God is eager to make use of and to provide answers to prayer for us, his people. Prayer is often an untapped resource, but one which is no less powerful. It looks unimpressive. It sounds almost unimpressive when someone's facing a grave problem and you say, I'm, I'm going to pray for you. You might be inclined to say, well, I'm going to pray for you. I'm also going to give you $100 to help with the problem. And certainly in Scripture, Jesus even says that we are to go when someone is in need. We are not to just simply send them away, go and be warmed. We are to minister to their worldly needs. But At the same time, we have not left empty-handed if someone says sincerely, I'm going to pray for you about this need. James goes on to tell us that the prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And you you may not feel very righteous this morning. Maybe you're not praying with a great and deep feeling that you're going to be heard and you don't have the language that God will most listen to and your heart isn't in the best and right place all the time. But that's why James has given us verses 17 and 18. You know, Elijah could rise to the heights of expectation and hope. He could proclaim the almighty power of God before an ungodly king, Ahab. But he also immediately thereafter hears from Jezebel, I'm going to kill you just like the prophets of Baal were by you. I'm going to kill you in the same way. And he runs into the desert and he keeps going and going and going until he finds a cave. And it's there that God finds him and goes before him in a still small voice. says, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, Lord, I am the only one left. They're all dead, all of your people. And God says, I have reserved for myself thousands who have not bent their knee toward Baal. And God ministers to him and he's gracious to him. And maybe you think that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours isn't something that should encourage us this morning, but he could rise to the heights of extraordinary accomplishment, but then fall into the depths of despair and depression. He could be brave and resolute sometimes, but then flee for his life at a hint of danger. He could be selfless in his concern for others and then fall to being filled with self-pity. But despite being of the same nature as that of this great hero of the faith, 
He prayed to God and God listened to him. Do you know that you can pray to God and God will listen to you? James sums up the ministry of Elijah in two verses, literally telling us that in praying, he prayed. He uses that word in in a double positive. In praying, he prayed. In praying, he prayed. He's simply pointing out the simplicity of what Elijah did. Elijah didn't accomplish anything by his own might and power. He simply prayed. He only prayed. He prayed. He prayed. The use of that Greek repetition shows there's nothing more than that Elijah's frequency or fervency of prayer did the trick here. It's not that at all. It's just simply that he prayed and nothing more. It's not because he prayed multiple times. It's not because he prayed in a wonderful way. It's simply that he prayed. In praying, he prayed. And if you're just praying... Sometimes you're unsure that you're being heard and you're praying and oftentimes frustrated by prayer because you feel the hidden sinfulness of your own heart more often than not. You feel that surely God doesn't hear me because I'm such a wretched sinner, a wretched man that I am. Surely if you're a child of God, there's not a word that has fallen. There's not a word that has fallen by the wayside. That's one thing that Joshua says in his book. There are no falling words. In other words, God's word has not failed. And when he has promised to hear us, surely our words do not fall either. Elijah prayed. Elijah in his prayer and in his oratorical skill could accomplish nothing more than what you can if you pray too. Simply pray. You may walk away frustrated at times, and you may walk away frustrated with your own self and feeling like, I I just didn't pray enough. I didn't pray uh, in in the words that I want to use. My heart is so much more, uh, more emotional than the words that come out of my mouth, and I stumble all over everything that I say, and I'm frustrated because I walk away, and I still have this problem, and I feel like I might not have been heard, but if you're a child of God, your words have been heard. Men and women since the beginning of time have been praying to God and they have been heard because God is a gracious God. The last thing that James says here is that if we are to, that fellow Christians, and I'm I'm going to to treat this very quickly, some of us may know of fellow Christians whose lives seem to be indicative of, uh, well, they're outside of the church or not in our church and They may have seemed to have slipped away from what they confessed with their lips, and we may know of some who are directly backslidden and have altogether left their first love, Christ. We may ask what is to be done. What can be done? And James is not saying all of your sins will be forgiven if you go and you win that person back. He's saying their sins will be forgiven if you go and you share the gospel with them or call them back to gospel faithfulness, and they return to the Lord, and they are reconciled to God. Their sins will be forgiven them. And their souls saved from death. There may be another kind of person. They're private. They're not asking for help. But nevertheless, your own eyes tell you uh, this individual is in a quagmire of sin. And, and they're unable or unwilling to pull themselves out. And this is where you and I come in. Where not only is the church to be a seedbed of faith. It's also to be a uh, and of prayer. It's also to be a seedbed of of. Godly people not examining with the intention to gossip and examine and tell everyone how they should live their lives, but who have a heartfelt concern for their brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And when you see a brother or sister in the Lord whose hearts have grown callous or they seem to be fleeing from the Lord, in compassion we reach out to them because we love them. And because if we were caught in such sinful behaviors, we would want someone else to reach out to us too. Recently, I spoke with an individual last week, I think. They described how they went to church and they haven't been going to church in, I don't know, 20 years. No one from the church ever contacted them. I can't imagine that. What a horrible thing. What a lack of love in that church. That shouldn't be the case here. It should be true that 
Each of us in the local church loves one another. That's the, that's, that's the important ingredient, love. Not, not self-righteousness, not self-judgment, not an accusative attitude, but love. Genuine love, working in faith, is, contains a deep concern for each other. And when we notice and see uh, that person seems to be struggling with alcoholism again, I need to reach out to them and show love and to call them back in faithfulness to God. Oh, that person seems to be going to places they shouldn't go. And I can see how it's impacting their life and heart. I'm going to sit down with them, ask for coffee, and say, Brother, sister, let me encourage you to think carefully about what you're doing and the direction your life is going in. Or if we see that someone has been coming to church, we might reach out and say, I miss you. I love you. You need to be here. There's much to be learned here. There's a breach of fellowship that shouldn't be taking place. Come. Come and return to the Lord. And if I've offended you, please forgive me. And if anyone else has offended you, go to them and forgive them. Well, the truth is that we belong together, all of us. And truth and life belong together. James wants us to live in such a way that the things that we believe bear fruit in how we behave with one another. If we are genuinely Christians, we're to act that way. And love should be a motivating factor in all the things that we do, whether that's seeking each other out when we see one another caught in a pattern of, of, of oppressive sin, or when we have offended one another, and or when we are offended, then in all of these respects, we are to love. But ultimately and always, the example is Christ, isn't it? Christ forgave us of our sins. Even though we were his enemies, he forgave us, Paul says in Ephesus, in, in Ephesians. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And Christ commanded that we should love our enemies You've heard it said. You should hate, you know, hate in, in various ways. But he says, I tell you, you should love your neighbor as yourself. But he also expands upon it and says, love your enemies. Show love to your enemies. If we're commanded to love our enemies, shouldn't we love the body of Christ who are not our enemies? But are our brothers and sisters in Jesus? So, dear friends, let us love as Christ has loved us. Let us love as Christ commands us. Let us love truly in word and in deed. Let's pray.